Good morning. We're in Hebrews chapter 2 again, and uh, we're looking primarily at verse 10. I want to read verse 10 for you, and then we'll go to the Lord with prayer. It says, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Father God, as we assemble this morning, Lord, we bring to you our praise and worship, Lord, and ask that it would be fitting in your sight, Lord, that you would receive it. Lord, and as we do come, we boldly profess our sin, Lord. We come to you with it. And we come to you, Lord, for righteousness and for forgiveness. For you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross. And many will, will downplay the reality of such a propitiation. Lord, that God came in the flesh as man, and this man would go to die for us. Lord, that he would face shame and agony and pain and suffering. Even if it would have been for just one man to be saved, but that is not the case for he is able to bring many sons to glory. For his sacrifice is all sufficient, for his blood is infinitely valuable. Lord, and for this reason we come to you this morning that you have taken what is bitter and iniquitous inside of man and you have changed it with a new heart of flesh and you've given us a desire to worship and to read your word Lord and I pray that for every person here this morning for everyone who would hear this message or for anyone who would read the scriptures that they would come now to, out of uh, necessity and obedience and, and legalism but Lord that we would truly be gathered to hear from you Lord, that we would be here to uh, be taught of Jesus Christ and be given of the Spirit discernment of this Word. For this Word is truth, Lord, and we cannot live by anything other than your Word. Lord, we pray that uh, the, the calling of Jesus Christ unto salvation and unto repentance is effectual. Lord, we pray that you would give us a, a spirit of humility. Lord, that... We could count it all joy in the sufferings of this life that they be for the, the truths of Christ and for the kingdom of Christ that we would proclaim that he alone is worthy of praise and honor. Lord, I just pray that you would give us this very mind that is in Christ Jesus, that we would serve him or that we would love him and that because of it, it would change our lives and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves, Lord, that we could truly be disciples, not merely what the world would call Christians, but true disciples of Christ. Lord, make us followers. Lord, and make us joyful to follow you. Uh, we thank you for your many blessings. Lord, and we pray for those who can't be here today. Uh, we just pray that you would minister to them, Lord, and provide a healing as you see fit, Lord, and that all things would be done according to your will and that we would be joyful and glad in them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
So we're back in Hebrews chapter 2 in our journey through the text of Scripture here in Hebrews. Of course, began with chapter 1 and we spent quite some time there. And, and then as we continue with chapter 2, we have seen that uh, these particular texts in this epistle are filled with the dual nature of Christ. And because it's filled with the dual nature of Christ, being both man and God, we see that there is also the glory of Christ because He is God. It began with declaring Christ Jesus the final word in Hebrews chapter 1. By no other man will we hear uh, the truths of the Father or the Son or the truths of salvation, and thus it must be spoken through Him. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David. This is a declaration that should be sounded by every person that is a believer in the God of the Bible. Every person who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the very word which we're called to profess and called to herald and called to proclaim. Through this same Christ, this Messiah, is the completed work on Calvary. That because of it we now have this revelation that is Complete and it serves as a model by which we must not only live but also as a model of righteousness because it contains the truth of Christ and who He is. And last but not least, it is a testimony and a witness where it is not one fold because it comes by the mouth of a man, but it comes through the Spirit of God that testifies of the Christ who is God that comes to do the will of God who is the Father. So therefore, there is a threefold testimony and witness by which We have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that in the hearing of this gospel, we may be transformed by it. That we may find life eternal. And I promise you that eternal life is not the best part, but the best part is knowing the Savior. Sometimes to put that in such a minute, on a minute scale, that we see something happening with someone, something wonderful and just to know that person, even if they're not our best friend, it's just wonderful to share in the, in the, the joys of that. Likewise, it should be to be Christians, to share in the joy just of knowing Christ. The eternal life is great, and the, the blessings of Christ, both in the life to come and this life, are wonderful. But knowing Christ is the true treasure, and certainly this must be what transforms us. This must be what causes us to meet together and to ascribe to Christ the the glory and the honor and to raise up with the praises that we have because His power is an eternal power and it's an inherent power and it's the power to bring the dead to life. We see this throughout Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 and then after seeing this, of course, in the first chapter, after promoting Christ as the final word, as the Father does, we see a glimpse of the deity of Christ and the nature thence which is unveiled with the explanation of His glory in the verses to come and in His work in creation, His work upon the cross. And then we see again veiled His glory and then His power, power that belongs to God where we have it now depicted right before our eyes, one who is not only powerful, one who is not only the glory and the express image of God the Father, but one who is seated at the right hand, who is royalty. He is the judge. 
Not only is he a judge, but he is the one who pardons. Then we have presented in the text Jesus' superiority to angels. The superiority to, to and over all created beings and most certainly the, the text dealt with the angelic beings because people, I guess, revered them so much as being messengers of God but yet when Christ comes, they received him not. And so the idea is that God would proclaim that Jesus is the last one through whom he will speak, the last prophet. And then he says that he is God. He describes his deity. He says he is royalty. He sits at the right hand. He's on the throne. And not only is he sitting on the throne, but he will judge. And because he is able to judge, he must be God. He must be better than angels. All of these things encapsulate the very attributes of Christ that, of course, only belong to God. And then again, we see His power, Creator and Judge, as He will create a new heaven and a new earth. And then soon we have this warning with the beginning of chapter 2 that we should all heed, a warning to heed the message of the Savior, Jesus Christ. For in such a message is the only salvation. Hear that again. In the message of Jesus Christ, this is the message, the only message of salvation. At very best, any other message is just something that will prolong what is to come. Eat healthy. Don't drink too much. Don't stay up too late. Don't ride four-wheelers all the time because it's bad for your back. These things only prolong what is to come. But Jesus Christ changes what is to come. For the believer, He changes what is a, a mortal life on earth headed for death into eternal life. And for the unbeliever, He changes their best life now into that which precedes the worst eternal life ever. An eternity in hell. And this is the message of the cross. Repent. Turn from your sins. For this Christ who has come to die is also the Christ who created you. The Christ to whom you should be uh, reverencing. To whom you should be bringing praise and ascribing glory and honor. And then in, in all of this we see the message of salvation through this man, through God, Jesus Christ, and we see that the Savior has fulfilled everything that mere average man could not and would not. That man is incapable of fulfilling these things. He's incapable of righteousness. He's incapable of goodness. And he desires not goodness without this Jesus Christ, the Christ of the Bible. So here we have Christ Fulfilling all things. And in fulfilling all things, we see the necessity of Christ being the one who is made for a little while lower than the angels. It takes nothing short of God to save man, and it takes nothing short of man to fulfill the requirements of man. Therefore, Christ has become a little while lower than the angels to serve all as man should serve. And then he would then be accredited with the death that belonged to man. 
the death that was due man, the suffering that would be due man for his sin against the just and holy God. And then, of course, that we saw last week in verse 9, at this time he's crowned with glory, crowned with honor, and tasting this death for everyone. This was an epistle written to Hebrew people who had been changed by the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so we must be vigilant to see that that everyone, that is everyone in the church, that is everyone who belongs to Christ, he's tasted this death. Then in verse 10, as we see, it says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. It's a beautifully deistic perspective, a divine perspective of our Trinitarian God. Not only does it depict this Trinitarian God, but it shows us that this God is a sovereign God. A lot of times we like to say that He has a plan for our lives and the truth is that he has a plan for mankind, but we must step back a little bit and see that Jesus Christ, the creator of all things that were created, by the will of the Father who sent him to die for this creation, has a plan not only for mankind, but for every single thing. This is a sovereign God, sovereign over everything, over every grain of sand, over every thing, both living and that which is unliving, mountains, streams, rocks. This is the Christ that we serve. And then to put it into perspective, not only did God prepare David for battle, but he planted those rocks that David would pick the exact one. I don't know if, sure, none of you have ever thrown any object at someone. But the shape matters to think that God even placed the rock. It's amazing. This is a sovereign God. Any God that didn't place all of these things and didn't prepare all of these things is no God at all. But what we see here is a, a beautiful picture of a sovereign God in verse 10. From a deistic perspective, we're seeing what he has done for creation. And it starts by saying, for it was fitting for him. This short phrase puts into to vision the very attributes of God. How was it fitting for him? Because it suited him well. This is the attributes of Christ, of the Spirit, of God, and no other being it was fitting because it's appropriate. And that's what it means. It was appropriate for him to do what uh, comes to follow in the, in the rest of the verse. It was fitting, appropriate, suitable for him, God, to do all things previously mentioned uh, in, verse, in chapter 
2, of course, but also everything previously mentioned in the Bible because remember I just said he's sovereign. It pleased God and it was appropriate and it was fitting for God to do everything leading up to the point of the cross even to allow the people who have received Christ to, to seemingly backslide, so to speak, for lack of a better term, and forget that this is the Christ to be reminded all of this just so that they could be reminded that there is a warning not to stray from this message, not to stray from this cross. All of this, it was fitting for him. It's fitting for God to do all of this. And you may ask, how is it so fitting? Because to do such, to do all of the things that God has done thus far, to put on display all of these characteristics. It describes the distinct attributes that reveal grace. The distinct attributes that reveal mercy. How can it do this? Because in the revelation of grace and mercy, there is the truth of justice. And that man deserves it. You say, I thought about it this week. And I talked to Brother John. And I don't remember how we got on the subject, but... You know, when we talk about knowing someone, it's kind of cliche that we, we say, you know, we can't really know somebody else until we know ourselves. But the truth is that we can't know ourselves unless we know Jesus Christ. That's what Christ has done through his propitiation. That is what God has allowed in that propitiation that we would see the perfect law of God and that now we can see ourselves. We can't even understand ourselves without understanding to some degree who this Christ is. And it's so fitting for him to do what he has done so that man would be revealed his sin nature, that he could repent, that he could believe in this Christ, that the attributes that belong only to God, grace, mercy, and forgiveness and long-suffering and, of course, His love, all of these things, His salvation, His sanctification, His justification, His power, His sufficiency, His immutability, His faithfulness, also that these things will be put on display, that we would understand that He is the living God. All this is being said to say this, by being God, it was natural and indicative of God to do for mankind what he has done through the person of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, it is likewise according to his character to perfect, as we will soon see. Notice the next portion. It says, for whom are all things and through whom are all things. This is a wonderful description of a holy, H-O-L-Y, and a holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, sovereign God. This is a description, a description of a holy, sovereign God, because it says, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things. This means that he is the first cause of everything, and everything is for his purpose. Turn, if you will, to 
Psalm 86. This God for whom are all things and through whom are all things. Beginning with verse 5 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. This is the description that we're seeing in verse 10 of chapter 2 in Hebrews. You are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. It's exactly what we see it was fitting for here's the description in psalm 89 it was fitting because he's good because he's ready to forgive he's abundant in loving kindness for all who are calling upon him and then here as we continue we'll see the whom for all things it says give ear O lord to my prayer give heed to the voice of my supplications in the day of my trouble i shall call upon you for you will answer me there is no one like you among the gods or lord O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. They shall come and worship before you because you are the one for whom all things are and through whom all things are. This describes the work of creation, first of all. In the beginning, God created through whom all things are. God created. Creation exists because God's work and was at the beginning. And it was not only His work that was wrought through Jesus Christ, as it's accredited in many places in the scriptures, even in John chapter 1, we see that Christ was there creating. But it is also the very will of God that we consequentially will see is the will of Christ. Because the two cannot be disconnected. For to disconnect them will be that one is less than God and less than perfect. And somehow not equal. And we know that it says that Christ thought that equality was not something to be grasped. But rather we see the work of creation exists because of God's work. God's work exists because of God's will. We see that it was the will also of Christ to do this work of God. It was Christ's will to do that which God had ordained and purposed for himself and for those things that he left to be subject to mankind. And although mankind would not exercise the subjection, he would not fulfill his role, we see that Christ comes. And everything will be subjected to Christ, and Christ alone must fulfill. I want to stop right there and mention something that came up this week. You guys know I don't too often get caught up in eschatology because it's something that we don't understand for sure and it to one in one sense is on no equal plane as salvation and that Christ will return. 
But as I was talking to Rusty this week, he said, you know, Tim, I'm beginning to see eschatology a little bit different as I, I once was uh, dispensational and then premillennial and then now I kind of understand how some people have a postmillennial view. He said, but now I'm wondering if Christ's kingdom is an earthly kingdom or is it, as all millennials would, would care to say, more of a spiritual kingdom? But I have a problem because I don't understand how it, it does, I know, in many ways fulfill the Davidic kingdom. But how could it? And my response to him, and I had never thought of it before, but it would be something for us to think of as we consider Christ fulfilling all things for mankind. I asked him, because so, so many people are waiting to see this 1,000-year kingdom on earth. And I said, have you ever considered David? When David was a king, there were many times when it didn't look like he was king. When David was hiding and David was running. And yet there were very few men, but still there were, ready to serve their king and ready to do whatever it was to place David back upon this throne. He never ceased really being king, and it may have not looked like it. Thus, I, I don't draw many lines in eschatology because I say that if David could be king, and it sometimes it didn't seem like people were honoring David as king, Christ is Lord of lords and king of kings, no matter if people acknowledge it or not. Christ is king. There is no dispute. Jeremiah chapter 32 verse 17 proclaims this great power of God that is wrought in creation over which he is sovereign. The likes of such are so incomprehensible that Isaiah says in chapter 40 verse 28, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And then one of what I believe to be the greatest on the topic, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This is a great picture in Ephesians of exactly what we see in Hebrews that is exactly what we see in the creation account. For we are His workmanship, verse 10, through whom are all things and for whom are all things. We are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus, the man, the God who existed before time, who created all things that were created, and then here is the fulfillment of Christ in those things. We're His workman, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath ordained, that we should walk in them. All things in subjection, but yet we do not see them. There's the beautiful picture in Ephesians that man was supposed to do this. Man was created to worship God. He was created to bring glory and honor to God. He was created to serve God and no one else. And that he could not do that. He's made in the image of God. Yet he denies the Christ. And then Christ comes. And what does Christ do? He fulfills all that God hath ordained. He fulfills 
All that we should have walked in before Christ. All that man was called to do. And then secondly, in understanding the through whom all things are, we see the work of creation and the will of God. And then secondly, we see providence. The providence of God. Psalm chapter 145, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. Sovereign God. Righteous in everything that he's planned. Righteous in every way. Job chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. This is the providence. This is the sovereignty of God being proclaimed. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6. You are alone. The Lord have made the heavens and the earth, the heavens of heavens with all their host, the earth, all that is on it, the seas, all that is in them. You give them life. And the heavenly host bows down before you. In Acts chapter 17. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. This is what is being described in Hebrews chapter 10. The deity Jesus Christ doing all that he's done to redeem mankind so that man can be restored that the great chasm could be closed, that his separation from God would not be forever, and in it, it proves that it is fitting, it is suitable for him because it puts on display every characteristic, every attribute that belongs to God. wouldn't be fitting for a mere man to save humanity. wouldn't be fitting for... A mere man to go to the cross for a mere man could not do the things in those actions that Christ has done. He couldn't redeem anything. A mere man could not do any work that is good for it would be filthy without Christ. But here it says that all things are for him and through him are all things. And it says that it was fitting for him Describing God, fitting for Him, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation. Now we'll look at the, and bringing many sons to glory. This is a glory that is heavenly. This is not an earthly glory. A heavenly glory is not temporal, it is forever. And an earthly glory uh, is a moment of fame, so to speak. It's for a, a moment of time. It is a vapor of a vapor. Your 15 minutes of fame, as we call it. This is earthly glory. But this is bringing many sons to heavenly glory. This is a glory that identifies the church who belongs to Christ. This is the bride with the groom. So that she is not known by who she was, but who she is with. Who she is in. Glory is undeserving to man. Glory to an undeserving man is it exalts 
the work of God, a real heavenly glory. Not only does it exalt the work of God, but it exalts the work of God that is wrought in Christ. This is true glory. Now they may be truly known as sons, here as we see that in bringing many sons to glory, those with an inheritance where before to claim such, the Jews would have had a fit. If you would have said, I am a son of God, they would have picked up stones to stone you. This is why they hated it when Jesus called God Abba Father. To say that you were somehow kin to the great God would be blasphemous to them because they didn't understand the Messiah. And in one sense, if they were to stone one another for saying this, and none of them believing that Jesus was the Christ, they would have been right. But instead, when we have Christ, it's truly fit. We can truly be known as sons. This heavenly glory is different because it's not temporal. It's not derived from man's perspective of what is good, from man's sense of self-righteousness. But this glory is found in the eternal worth of the price payer, the real worker of good deeds, Jesus Christ. The work of God in Christ makes it possible for men to partake in glory that is not their own. And that is what this particular passage is describing. It's describing God and it's describing the work of God in Christ. And it's describing a glory that belongs only to him. It's a passage of deity. Yet it's describing where man will receive that which he does not deserve. This is the work of God that makes it possible for men to partake in God's glory. Therefore, man may take no credit. Man may boast not. The picture is truly that of adoption. It's made manifest through the supernatural change that is brought only by God. Then it says, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting for him to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. This is where you can get on a, a million rabbit trails and a thousand different denominations about what this means. If it means anything other than what I present to you, if it means anything less than that, I would say, it could mean so much more. We can never discover truly the depths. But if it means anything less than what I bring, then it's truly not speaking of Jesus Christ. Because some will say, Jesus had to be perfected. This is not to insinuate this passage that Jesus is anything or was ever anything less than perfect. For if Christ is infinite, if Christ is eternal, then he must have been perfect. Death only comes to those that are imperfect. Beings and creatures of all kinds, only because of imperfection. Christ's death was really a life of victory over death. But here we see that every action and every circumstance was such to bring glory and honor and exaltation to him. These sufferings, these trials, the tribulations, they didn't make Christ perfect, but that they showed Christ perfect. 
They showed himself approved. Why is it any wonder that men in the Bible, leadership are always cursed to show themselves approved because Christ, through suffering, showed himself approved. He wasn't being perfected as if he was less than perfect, but he was showing, he's putting on display perfection, righteousness, morality, all these things that men had no grasp of before Christ had come. And these things, these trials, these tribulations, these sufferings, there is a witness of God. The witness of God in three persons, the Trinity, that now testify of the dual nature of Christ in that uh, He alone can fulfill man's responsibility. And that He alone can provide a sufficient sacrifice. With these things being so, we must continue on to see that He must also be God in order to condescend, yet still be the radiance and the exact imprint, the radiance of His glory and the exact imprint of the nature of God. This means that Jesus must be God. He must be man to fulfill man's responsibility. He must be God to be the perfect sacrifice. He must be God in order to condescend. It's by these things, these sufferings, that the true divine nature of Christ shines through. In all these things, God is to be glorified. He is truly the Alpha and the Omega and the purpose and the cause for both man and all of creation, as we see in the opening part of verse 10. So we see it was fitting for him because only his attributes could be displayed to show only the nature of God and that his plan has always been to redeem man. I think it goes so well with what Brother Pat taught this morning in Sunday school. Describing that man was created for him, created by him, perfected only in him and that he would be brought to glory Brethren, those who partake in Christ and His sufferings, those who have been crucified with Christ. And then notice that it doesn't only say that He's perfected, but it almost brings it back to a circle because it says that in bringing many sons to glory through the sufferings, perfect the author of their salvation. It's saying He's being shown and approved as perfect. And then when it says the author of their salvation, it's bringing it back and saying, look, he was there before the beginning. He wrote this. This is his plan. This is his creation. This is his sacrifice. Does it come at the hand of man? That means you can't just call and say, Lord, come into my heart, save me. It says this is his plan. It's his work and it's his application. We can only be recipients. We can only be recipients. This is a sovereign God. When I thought about these things, I thought this was really foretold as Christ was right before the cross. In John chapter 18, verse 37, it says, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world 
to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He says, for this is my purpose of being born. And this is the purpose that I have come into the world. And then he, he throws out all of what we know to be rational reality with man because he says, I come to be born to bear witness of the truth, a truth that he had known from before the beginning. How could one be born to bear witness of the truth unless he already knew the truth? He already had an intimate knowledge of the Father. He already had this glory and he prayed in John chapter 17 that he could uh, be restored to the same uh, glory and the same relationship that he had with the Father. And it's because he is sovereign God. Anytime we go to open up this scripture and we'll continue next week and see that it was fitting for him we should likewise, in application, ask, what is fitting of us as disciples, as true believers in Christ? And today we'll get to witness one of those awesome responsibilities that is fitting for Christians that we would baptize, that we would disciple to the point of, of one being able to understand the things of Christ by hearing the preaching of the word, not that we could do anything or make any sense, that we could speak eloquently, but that we could proclaim the word and by it, we could do what is fitting for disciples of Christ. Baptizing. Caring for one another. Holding one another accountable. And at all times proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ that we may be reminded He is the author of salvation. He is the accomplishment and the accomplisher of the work of the cross. When Christ said it was finished, we also realize that He is the beginning and He is the end. Salvation began with Christ creating everything for His purpose, for His glory, and for His honor. And it was finished in Christ's sufficient sacrifice on the cross. The author, perfecter of faith, Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank You uh, once again, Lord, and we love you, Lord. We love you for what you've done for us. We love you for this incomprehensible truth of Christ. That somehow the God who created all of creation saw a desperate need for salvation because though equipped Though prepared with the word and though prepared with your commandment, Lord, not to eat of this fruit, we still disobeyed. But even in that disobedience, God, you prove that uh, man has some value to you. That he bears the image that is yours. God, somehow in all of that and the most heinous of crimes you've sent your son Jesus Christ Lord I just pray that uh, as we continue to study these scriptures Lord and as we uh, look over these if you would tarry God we just pray that the truth of Jesus Christ would reign supreme 
uh, in the hearts and in the minds of all who hear this message, Lord. And we know that there are those in this room right now, God, who trust in themselves, who either think that they're good, Lord, or that they just simply don't care. Lord, we pray that you would place a great burden in their hearts to see that Jesus Christ is such a wonderful man and such a powerful God and that he's perfect and that in his perfection, Lord, that we would see our flaws uh, for just a brief period of time even, Lord, just long enough that we would repent and that we would look back to the cross. God, we pray for the salvation of those who are lost. Lord, we pray for your church, not just the church here, but uh, that you would continue to preserve her as you've promised that you will, Lord, and that you would give us strength, uh, not in the, the physicality of the body, Lord, but spiritual strength, the strength to continue to trust your word, Lord, and to, to live upon every word that you have breathed forth for man to understand. Lord, and we just pray that our sustenance would be uh, a heavenly sustenance, that it would be truly the Christ that was the manna in the wilderness and that we would feed upon it, Lord, and be satisfied as our forefathers were not, Lord. Please give us the desire to continue to meet, Lord, and to worship and to confess our sins to one another. Lord, and just cause us to be open-minded and seeking Christ in the Scriptures that we would be transformed. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And Lord, that we ask you to bless the food that we'll partake of in just a moment. We thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.